you can be seated. Good morning. Over the last couple of weeks, as we have <clears throat> launched our Word 511 campaign, the Home Point team has prepared a few videos for us that showed some of our young people talking about the question, why do I love my Bible? And so, uh, this was good timing by the Home Point team because last week we started getting uh, submissions of people sending us videos of their children answering the question and saying, here is our entry for cutest kid at the church contest. And, and so this year they've gone to the other age, uh, end of the age spectrum and we have a few of our senior citizens, our experienced believers answering the same question about why they love their Bible. Let's enjoy this together. Isn't it neat to be able to watch Eileen and Troy and Joanne talk about why they love their Bibles after having served here for 80 or 90 years of their life in Christ and a lot of that time here with us. Uh, yesterday we had the chance to do the funeral service for a lady, Bertha Cornell, who was a longtime member here and in two months she would have been 96 years old. And this is one of my favorite things about the Bentonville congregation is that we're truly a church with all generations represented. We have people that have been loving Jesus and learning to read their Bibles for their whole life journey. Uh, so I feel just the same as Joanne did in the video. There's a lot of times I read my Bible and come across a verse and I say, well, I don't think I've ever seen that before. So whether that's because we're encountering it fresh for the first time or whether that's just what starts happening to you when you're 35, Thank God that he lets us keep reading it and we keep rediscovering the truths in Scripture, right? Amen? Amen. Why don't we pray together and then we will dive in uh, to today's Scripture. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this gift of having in this church people who are young and people who are old, who love the Word of God and who explore it and study it in order to grow from wherever you have them now to the next place that you are calling them to. God, would you allow this to be the story of our lives? that as we study your word and read from it, that it would be not just a project or not just a hobby or a habit, but that it would be the way you call us to become more like Jesus at each stage of our life, no matter where we are at. If you would do that for us and transform us to be like your son through the scriptures, uh, God, we give you our thanks, we give you glory already, but we would be even more grateful if you would continue to do that. 
And so we trust you to teach us through your word, and we thank you for Jesus, the perfect uh, representation of your word and your will on earth. And it's in his name that we pray and we love you, and together we say amen. So as we are in our Word 511 series, uh, today is the last day of the proper series, and all of the packets are out there to be distributed for you to pick up and take home today. And so I just want to remind us that Word 511 means being in the Word of God five times a week as an individual, and one time a week where you're sharing with your spouse, and one time a week where you're sharing with your family. Uh, or, you know, if, if your home isn't set up that way right now, just to continue using the 511 model in whatever way works for you to be having conversations with friends and family about the Word of God. Today, the packet that is released has all of these materials that are on the screen behind me. Uh, this is just to show you that there's a lot of stuff in there. And here is what's going to happen with a lot of packets if we don't show some careful attention. We'll take them home with good intention and they'll go in the mail pile or they'll get set on the counter and Sunday afternoon gets busy or you have a very important appointment with a nap and then later we will forget to read through it. And so here's the challenge today to take 10 minutes, get your favorite cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever works for you and sit down and open the packet and just read through it. You don't have to start it yet. You don't have to feel like, oh man, like this has to begin right away. You just open it and read it so that you're familiar with what's in there. And that's going to make it a lot more likely that it's going to be useful for you. I brought one of my favorite pieces uh, of the kit here. This is the bookmark that's included. And I'm going to keep this in my Bible over the next few weeks as I preach. It has a Bible study method on it, which is something that all of us could try out and learn from. Uh, and it has a reminder of what the word 511 challenge means. So pull those things out. There's date cards in there for spouses. Uh, there are activities you can do with children. There's some things for personal discovery. There's some sheets for the kids to color. There's all kinds of stuff in there. So we hope that this will be a blessing to you. And, um, and in a few weeks, I'm sure we'll be excited to hear some of the stories of, of what God's doing in your lives and in your homes through this packet. Uh, as we've been doing Word 511, we've been taking the opportunity to anticipate the coming of Jesus. And over the last couple of weeks, we've done it in these first two ways. We've looked at some texts of scripture uh, from Paul and from Isaiah, both weeks, that have helped us to discover that all Bible reading is about meeting Jesus. There's a lot of things people will tell you the Bible is for or that the Bible should do for you, but none of them matter if it's not about meeting Jesus. And so in the Bible, everything leads to Jesus and everything leads from him. It all points to him and it all points back to him. This is the ultimate purpose of our Bible reading. But when we meet Jesus, a couple of amazing things happen. And last week we talked about the second one. One who meets Jesus learns to accept others. In meeting him, we're reminded that we were loved when we were far away and when we were the least well-behaved and when we were enemies of God. And so we become more open and accepting towards others and more hopeful about their role in the kingdom of God because we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us. But today I want to talk about this last one on the screen, this third one. Because for some of us, the greatest problem in our life might be uh, the second one, the one from last week. That we look at the world and we see trouble and problems and we think it's because of what other people are doing. A lot of us spend our lives with some anxiety that the world would be better if everyone else would just get their act together and behave. And so that's where last week's lesson is really for all of us that are struggling with that. But many of us struggle with this third one. 
which is that we live with anxiety and we live with stress and we live with pressure because we are never where we think we should be or we are never where we think God was supposed to have taken us. And so we have trouble accepting God's plan for this stage in our life. So two different ways that we struggle uh, and we blame and we say people should do things, but the second one is when we're looking at others and they should be this way. And the last one is when we say, I should be this way, or God should have, have delivered me from this. And so we're gonna look at today, when we meet Jesus in scripture, it helps us to accept God's plan in each stage of our lives. And we're going to do it by looking at a text where a teenage girl was faced with one of the most unexpected life problems that she didn't want or ask for, but she learned to accept and to see how God was going to use it to further good in the world. And this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, there's a couple of reasons that you may or may not be familiar with Mary's song. Uh, one of the reasons you may not know Mary's Magnificat in Scripture is that you just maybe haven't read the Bible throughout your life long enough that you've got to this part yet. It could be you just haven't ever read this part, and today you get to see what it looks like when a teenage girl faces a terrible life crisis and learns through her Bible study to praise God with words that she learns from her Bible study. But there's another reason you maybe aren't familiar with Mary's Magnificat. There was a kind of anti-Catholic movement that happened starting about 500 years ago called the Protestant Reformation. And most people would consider our church to be within the Protestant churches, which just really means they were protesting against abuses in the Catholic Church. And one of the things that happened that's trickled down through the years since that time is that churches in the Protestant tradition are very sketchy when it comes to Mary. They remember the Catholic Church praying to Mary and making a big deal out of Mary and turning Mary into something like a mother goddess. And it's so uncomfortable that churches have gone all the way to ignoring her and almost writing her out of Scripture. Well, that really isn't a very good way to handle the Bible. If it's in there, it's for our encouragement and it's for our edification and we need to know about it. And so here's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to look at Mary, but not, not to turn her into some like divine that we pray to but also not to ignore her and, and write her part of the story out of Jesus' story, but to have a balanced view of Mary where we see what God was doing in her and what he wants to do in us. So when Mary heard from the messenger of God that she was to be pregnant and it wasn't gonna be her fault for some kind of immorality and it wasn't gonna be because she was abused because some man was at fault for taking advantage of her, it was going to be that no one was at fault, but everyone was going to look at her and think that someone was at fault. This is what Mary did. She did what is typical for a teenager. She turned to music. Have you ever been with a bunch of teenagers when they're getting through something like the first night of Bible camp? The first night of Bible camp is tough on everyone, but especially on teenagers because they've been soaking up all of the concerns of regular life for so long. The stresses of dating and what's going on at school and the school year that just ended and worrying about whether or not I'll be ready for band camp or football camp in time. And the things that are going on between this friend and the third friend and I'm the one that needs to fix it and all of the texting and all of the drama and it saturates your life. So we get to Bible camp and no one's ready. 
The first night is notoriously rough because people are saturated with their concerns. And then we start to do all these crazy things. Uh, like we play a lot of games uh, and sometimes they are very, very good because I plan them and I plan them out in great detail and everybody is going to love them, okay? <laughs> and sometimes they're, they're very good but I'm the only one that knows it because we get the kids to eat an entire barrel of Cheeto puffs like this in one night and we make them race around with Cheeto puffs on spoons and for years and years kids make fun of Josh Bundy for the Cheeto puff game night but we forgive them for that too, right? And so on the opening night, they're very ornery and they're hard to deal with. And, and then what do we do? We start to sing. We begin to sing. And all the next day, we sing in the morning and we sing in the afternoon and we sing at night. And what's God doing by the end of the second night? He's transforming people through the singing and the songs. It's like the singing begins to push out all of the concerns and the cares that we brought with us. It's like a ringing experience where all of that drains away and we begin to saturate ourselves afresh with the word of God and, and things that are said in scripture instead of all the stuff that I brought with me. If you've ever hung out with a teenager on a road trip, you know how fast in the middle of conflict the AirPods can go in, the earphones drop. And this is how we have to see Mary in this moment. Mary gets the message from the angel and she immediately sits down with her notebook and she begins to write lyrics because this is what teenagers do. They sing their problems through until they have resolution. And so Mary turns to the music that she knows and she loves because Mary is a 511 kind of Bible student girl. She's read the Psalms and she's read the prophets and she's familiar with all of the things that the Bible says about God. But now, for the first time in her life, she desperately needs it to be true. And so she starts writing with the words of Scripture for her own circumstances all the great promises of God. And she does it with words like this, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And all of these words are coming from Mary's Bible study. If you were to, this week, open up your paper Bible and read the Magnificat again, and you have a study Bible that has the center line notes, or you open an electronic Bible that has all the hyperlinks, you will see at the end of each line of Mary's poetry these hyperlinks that link back to numerous Old Testament psalms. We're not talking just three or four, but dozens of psalms that she is pulling key words and phrases and ideas from. And then she's also pulling from other books in the Old Testament, from across the whole Tanakh, just like her son Jesus will later do. And when Mary does this, she pulls particularly from a song that seems to have been important to her that was written by the woman Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, I didn't put this text on the screen today because you know, I knew I'd only have a minute or two to share something from Hannah, and I just want to read you a couple of phrases. So uh, if you want to, in your Bible, look, it's 1 Samuel 2, but I'll just read a few phrases to you and listen to where Mary's getting some of her words and her framework from this prayer from a a healthy, faithful woman who wrote poetry in the Old Testament. Hannah's first line of her song prayer goes like this. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Doesn't that sound like Mary's? My soul glorifies the Lord. 
Uh, Hannah wrote, uh, I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. And Mary had just said, holy is his name. We so often think that it was Jesus who first taught us to pray our uh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. But Jesus isn't the first one who teaches us to call God holy like that. His mother Mary was writing it in her teenage poetry, you know, 30 years before his ministry. And she was getting the idea from a prayer that was written by a faithful woman of God hundreds of years before her life. And all across the Psalms where God is called holy. And in this song of Hannah, she talks about things like how God takes the mighty and the powerful and he humbles them for their own good and the good of the people around them and how he takes the people that are in trouble and he lifts them up and he honors them for their good and the people around them. And God does all of this because he has the foundation of the world in his hands and people's destinies and their stories are his and God is leading Hannah and Mary to answer the question, why do I love my Bible? And Hannah and Mary say, because it reminds me that in all things, God is with me and he can help me accept what no one else can help me accept. Amen? Amen. And so she writes, his mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. And there's Mary, pregnant teenager, humbled and afraid, looked at sideways by people. Everyone assumes she's done something wrong. And she says, I know God lifts up the humble. And I want to know, what does it look like when Christians, the church today, work together to lift up the humble? What does it look like when the church becomes so open towards others in the world from meeting Jesus in Scripture that we also open up our own hearts and we realize my problems, my suffering, and the weight that I'm carrying is part of the opportunity that God has given to me to be open to lifting up the humble. How does it work? And it looks like this. It's very simple, and it's very familiar, and it's very recent. It looks like when the church is coming together and they're serving people in our community, but not with a we're up high and you're down low mentality, but with a we're down low with you mentality. We're looking eye to eye mentality. This isn't just about pity for people. This is about compassion with people. This is about giving something where you can look someone in the eye and say you are loved and I am loved and this is going to be okay and work out because God loves you and loves me. He has lifted up the humble. And it looks like this where we experience it through the good leadership of people that pull together the activity and they have prepared these gifts they're not just thrown together in a pile to give to someone, but they've been carefully and lovingly wrapped and presented in a way that shows that we care about the dignity of the person that is receiving them, and we want it to be fun. And it, it looks like food in boxes and potatoes and turkeys that other people are standing in the cold and going in and out of the refrigerated trucks to hand to people and helping them load in their car. And it looks like children that take the time to uh, decorate ribbons and bows to put on the presents and the women that are leading them in it and that are taking people around shopping from table to table and the men who are ready to carry it to the car and even the management. 
that managed so well, coffee in hand, and yesterday, Gil Curran, who many of you know, but some of you don't, worked his very hardest to unionize against these guys. <laughs> it didn't come through. And by the way, the guy taking the picture was enjoying his coffee and his management as well. It, it looks like this. When the people of God come together in love to do something where we look other people in the eye and just simply say, I am loved and you are loved. And God has a plan for us today. Mary can say it like this. He's filled the hungry with good things. And a lot of that's food. And some of it is spiritual food. But how does God fill the hungry with good things? He puts things in the hands of his servants and he expects his servants to hand them on. He puts things in the hearts of his servants and he expects them to write songs. He puts things on the hearts of teenage girls and he expects them to write songs that will be sung in churches for 2,000 years, even if people in her own day look at her sideways. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sends the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. And I've said that Mary is a 5-1-1 kind of girl. She does her Bible reading. This last line is proof. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. With that one little line, Mary ties all of her hope back into the faithfulness of God, who said to Abraham, I'll bless the whole world through your descendants. And Mary says, when God comes to me and says, you're going to be pregnant in a way you didn't expect, and it's, it's going to be a tough time in your life, and people are going to ridicule you and look sideways at you, but hang in there because it's all for my way of saving the world through the Son of God. And Mary, teenager, writes songs about it. When God comes to her and he says that, Mary has hope because she knows I'm anchored in the story of God. This isn't about my moment. This is about what God does in generation after generation of people who read his word and remember to trust him. And I think that sometimes we forget how very hard this is for Mary because we've seen so much artwork, especially at Christmas, that has made it cute. Mary is wearing makeup. Mary is around the manger and all the animals look like they have been brushed and combed. The wise men are there and the shepherds are there and lo and behold, they don't smell bad like shepherds would have smelled. Everyone is spit and polished and shined up and there's even a little drummer boy there in the mix. And some of these things are in the text of scripture and some of them are just add-ons that make us feel good. And we have this white European Joseph and Mary family from all of the middle age art in our mind and they have halos on their head and they receive the birth of the Lord with great joy but we know that it was harder than that and I don't know who the artist is but I appreciate the effort that went into trying to capture in a modern way some of the trouble that goes along with being the teenager that nobody trusts the one that they look sideways at. Now, let me zoom in so that you can see a few more details in this artistic reimagining of what if Jesus came today. You've got Joseph and Mary seated here, but in the background is Dave's City Motel. Get it? The city of David. And it says on it, no vacancy, uh, free HBO. That clearly isn't from Scripture. Uh, but... <laughs> 
new manager. Uh-oh, the A fell off the sign. New manger. You see how they're playing games with us here. And in the foreground is the girl. And she's seated not on a living donkey, but on one of those quarter horse rides that you and I probably rode on at some point in our life outside of a shopping center in the town that we grew up in. And scrawled in Sharpie on the side of the phone booth is a scripture reference, but it's hard to read until you zoom way in. And the star is there and the wise men are there, but everything's been a little mixed up and it's clouded. And look at the pictures on their faces. His name badge says Jose. He's not the person that we expect. We see two people, obviously troubled. And we lean over and we say to our spouse, let's drive on to the next gas station. I think it's in a better part of town. The artist captured for us what is hard for us to remember, is that this moment of Mary's great faithfulness and her writing of a hymn that would endure for two millennia was not an easy time, and it was not an easy message. She was looked at sideways. I find it captivating that the artist in this drawing didn't put halos around the head of Joseph and Mary, and yet he did, or she did. Uh, there's a beef jerky sign behind Joseph's head, encircling his head. There is a star behind Mary's head that says something like save money or save more or live better. I'm not sure what it says, but it says save. And the word save stands out right above Mary's forehead. And there is a dove, and out of the mouth of the dove is a musical note representing the song that she wrote, knowing that in her trouble it was God who would stand faithful. It takes us a whole lifetime of learning to trust the worst moments in our life are also moments that belong to God to begin to see that it's only in the hardship that God begins to let the shoot of David, the branch from the stump of Jesse, grow and, and bear new fruit and cause the kingdom of God to show up in surprising ways in our hearts. We have trouble seeing it in the lives of others and in our own lives, but God is always testifying that it is here it is available, and it is now. This is the God that we worship and that we anticipate at this season. Let's stand together and sing, and if you'd like to pray with us, join our elders at the back or right down front here.